This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to a special podcast. This week, I am so lucky to have got Dr. Kirk Parsley back on the show for the fourth time. And he was wanting to discuss some very, very pertinent areas when it comes to this pandemic with uh, the coronavirus that we're seeing at the moment. His perspective, I think, is going to be extremely valuable for all of you because it is areas that we, the individual, we, the household, while self-isolating, can action to improve our own health and improve our resilience to this virus and hopefully minimize the response if and when we do get it ourselves. So there have obviously been worst case scenarios pasted everywhere. Um, if you turn on the news, all they're focusing on is the death rate. And so he definitely puts some of those numbers into perspective, not taking away at all from the potential for this being harmful to all of us. But the other side of the coin is this fear is creating a breakdown in immunity. It is. It's stress. It's, it's interrupting sleep. It's getting people not exercising, maybe not eating properly. So what he's bringing in this conversation are areas that you, the listener, can act on now to improve your own health, whether you're at home, whether you're a first responder. And I think that's very important. It's an area that hasn't really been discussed because people are so focused on the statistics. So a fantastic conversation. I urge you not only to listen to this, but also to share it. This is going to be very pertinent whenever you listen to it. But obviously, if you're listening in the next few weeks, even more pertinent. So as I always say, please subscribe to the show, um, leave feedback and leave a rating on the podcast app that you're listening to. But most importantly this week, just share, share this information, try and reduce the fear in some of these people and increase their feeling of being able to take control of some areas of their life and protect their family. So with that being said, I introduce to you for the fourth time, Dr. Kirk Parsley. Enjoy.
Dogs Parsley, I want to start by saying thank you because you are basically the first person I've had on this show now four times. So for everyone listening, episode six, then 70, then 241, and then here we are again. So I want to start by saying thank you for coming on yet again. Uh, thanks for keeping your standards low enough to have me keep coming back. You are more than welcome. <laughs> um, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Uh, I am in my home. Or I'm actually in my office, but uh, I'm in my hometown of Austin. Last time I saw you was Florida, right? At Anthony Beck's house. Yes, yeah, in Orlando. Yeah, we did a face-to-face, which was brilliant. So, yeah, everyone listening, I recommend, if you haven't heard the other ones, please do. But obviously, this is going to be very pertinent um, because it's a great Petri dish for a lot of the things that we've discussed in the past as far as resilience and and overall health. So I think that um, we, we've got some questions from from people on the internet that I want to get to later, but I think we should open with what you are seeing at this time, um, which I'm sure is going to align with what I've been saying as well as far as working on health to make yourself more resilient. But uh, I'm going to give you the mic now and, and kind of open up with, with your perspective on this virus. Yeah, well, um, you know, I... I've been doing a lot of these podcasts uh, for similar reasons. And, you know, I, my first, first order of business is to say, even though I'm a medical doctor, I'm not offering any medical uh, advice here. Uh, I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist or virologist, so I'm not the, I'm not the expert in this field. Um, You know, I, I obviously have some experience in my life that's pertinent to this, um, you know, particularly in practicing, um, you know, emergency, uh, and not, I'm, I wasn't an emergency medicine doctor, but, you know, we do sort of mass casualty emergency readiness drills in the military where we build field hospitals and, you know, practice bringing in simulated patients and all that stuff. Um, and I have a pretty good idea of the medical capabilities of our military, which I think are being completely uh, under uh, under um, appreciated and thought of. So, um, you know, the 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 thing that I see as being the most important about what's going on right now, um, the most important thing that we address is sticking to the facts. Okay, um, we have we have a paucity of facts. Unfortunately, there's a lot there's a lot of unknown, and in the absence of the unknown, we tend to go to worst case scenario. And there's an evolutionary reason for that. And it makes perfect sense that we should do that as a species that saves lives in the long run. But, you know, when, when we start talking about, you know, some sort of pandemic and, uh, or epidemic and, and, and to be clear, you know, pandemic is, is, you know, just a fancy science word. It just means all people, like uh, all, all people are being affected by this. That's really all it means. Right. Um, and you know, when, when we, when, when we're looking at a pandemic, um, everybody's worried about death and, um, you know, morbidities, uh, you know, illness, uh, financial crisis and, and all of these things. There's a lot of things to worry about. Um, now, that doesn't remove the reality that there's a lot of stuff to worry about every single day. This is just new, right? So this is one more thing we're adding to it. Um, we already have to worry about uh, getting cancer and dying from cancer, uh, dying from heart attacks and strokes and dying from medical errors and dying from accidents and dying from 
you know, any type of uh, sort of lifestyle illness, uh, you know, obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes. There's all these things that can kill us. Uh, and there's all these things that can cause us to be disabled and lose our jobs and lose money. And all of those things we worry about all the time, but very, very little, right? It's in the back of our subconscious all the time, but it's not something that we're perseverating on. We're not putting all of our attention on it. And right now, because it's novel, because nobody knows what to think and people hate uncertainty, uh, you know, we, we know that we lose over a million people in automobile accidents in America every year, but we still drive our cars because we've mitigated the risk to the point where we think that we're in enough control to where we're not worried about it, right? We, we, we buy and drive uh, capable vehicles that have been crash tested and are roadworthy and road safe. We wear seat belts, we have airbags, we don't have to drink and drive, we drive the speed limit, we, ab we obey, we obey you know, road signs and stoplights and uh, you know, we don't text and drive, we don't talk on our phones, like, right? Everybody is, is, there's a social pact that we're going to do all of these things and even doing all of these things, we know that a lot of people are gonna die every year. But that risk is worth it to us. And we don't think it's going to be us because we feel like we have these controls, all the things that I just listed. I'm doing all of these things right. Now, I can do everything right, and uh, a semi-truck driver can fall asleep at the wheel and run right over my little car or truck, whatever I'm in, and you know, kill me and anybody who's in the car with me. Like the, we like the illusion of control. We don't have control over whether or not we get cancer by and large. We don't need, you know, there, there are people who live very healthy, responsible lifestyles and die young of heart attacks. There are people who do everything that the best evidence says to do and still get cancer and die from cancer. And, you know, that there are lots of things that are beyond our control, but this is a new thing. And so the newness, the novelty is what's freaking people out. And so... I'm, I'm just offering kind of a, a different uh, narrative or maybe an expanded narrative. And one of the most important things I think about um, that I don't think is really getting nearly enough attention um, is the, you know, the whole concept of what, what a virus is when what it does and sort of, you know, to do some anthropomorphism like, what is it? What's its intent? What, you know, what's the virus's end goal? Right. And really, a virus is un, is not unlike a bacteria or another animal or a plant or pollen or spores or seeds or, you know, any of these other things. Right. All of all of those things share one thing in common. They're all trying to propagate their genetic material. Um, and again, that, that's anthropomorphic anthropomorphism there there's no such thing as a conscious thought in a bacterium that says or a plant that says i'm going to spread my genetic material right this is just the way this is the, just the way life goes on the planet so viruses aren't alive they're not organisms they can't move on their own they can't do anything on their own but when they get into their host meaning the animal or plant or whatever that they can infect they can hijack the machinery of that organism to produce more of themselves. And in doing so, they're spreading their genetic material. And this is kind of the end game of life. And we're not exactly sure why that is. And it's not the same across everything, but almost everything on this planet is 
you know, that's not completely inert is trying to expand its genetic lineage across the world. Now, if you use some rationality to that, so coronaviruses are really common. They're they're really common in in mammals and birds. Uh, they're not so common in humans, but you know all all viruses can genetically mutate and become dangerous to other hosts. Uh, so coronaviruses aren't you know usually in other mammals besides humans because we're not exposed to them. It's just we're not vulnerable to them, and you know there are. Build, uh, there are you know more than trillions, more than quadrillions, whatever. I don't know whatever the the next levels are. There, I mean, there are orders of magnitude more virus viruses on this planet than there are grains of sand, right? I mean, they're everywhere, and we're being exposed to them all the time. So when when a virus can affect a host and it can get inside of that host and it can attach itself to the cells of that host and it can hijack the machinery of that host and it can put its genetic material into the genes of the, it doesn't put it into the genes, but affect the gene expression of this, of the uh, cell that it's gotten into and it changes what that cell does. So now instead of being a liver cell that's doing all the happy, fun things a liver cell does, it starts producing mass quantities of this virus instead. And then eventually those quantities get so large that that cell ruptures. And now we have viruses spread all over and all of those viruses go attack other cells or attach themselves to other cells. And this just keeps going on until our immune system can find these viruses floating around in our bloodstreams and in our interstitium and attack them and dissolve them, you know, with chemicals or, you know, uh, you know, cells that actually eat things like this, um, you know, and this is whether it's a virus or a bacteria or even some parasites, it kind of the defense system is always the same. So if you think about that, um, you know, we classify bacteria and uh, we classify lots of things into families, right? And what does a family mean? If you think about it intuitively, a family, a family just means that you share a common lineage, right? So at one point, uh, and at one point in human existence, there were there were only, uh, you know, maybe, a, you know, a couple of humans that got together and procreated. And that led to more offspring, which led to more offspring, which led to more offspring. But all of those people, in some respect, were a family. And we've kind of we kind of whittled that down now to where we have our own definition of what we consider a family and what we consider ancestors and all this other stuff. But the point of it is. If a virus is a family and it and what that family is trying to do is sort of expand the genetic material of that family, the worst thing that that virus could do would be kill all of the hosts that get it, right? Because if a virus was so virulent, meaning so powerful, that it got into an animal and it immediately killed that animal, well, then it wouldn't get to spread, would it? So there's... There's a reason that viruses mutate and don't kill a lot of people or don't kill a lot of animals. And it's not and it's not any kind of benevolence on the idea of the virus. It's like if you kill the way that you're getting propagated, then you can't get propagated. Right. So the the whole doomsday scenario of this is going to wipe out huge portions of the population Uh it, it doesn't make any sense if you know if if enough if enough people die from this 
soon enough, early enough, then there's just going to be fewer people around to infect other people. Um, so it, it, the doomsday ideas of this are, are just completely overblown, in my opinion. Um, and again, that's just my opinion. Um, but you know, what, what I'm trying to get people to do is realize that there's a finite number of things that you can do right now. In the absence of good information, all we can work on is the incomplete information right we have right now, right? And we don't have any idea what the death rate of this is because we don't have any idea what the prevalence of it is and what the incidence of it is. And so the the incidence would be how many people are how many people are contracting it right now, right? Like how over the next 24 hours, how many new how many people actually get it, right? That would be the incidence. But how many people worldwide have it or community wide, whatever population you're studying, how many people in the community have it? That's the prevalence of it. The incidence is how many, how many, how many times are we finding it? Right. And we have to calculate the death rate. We need the prevalence, not the incidence. Right. So the incidence is just what we're measuring. And we know that we could be off by hundred percent, we could be off by 10,000%. There could literally be 10 times more, there could be 100 times more people who have already been exposed to this virus and developed immunity than we know. And the only way we would ever know that is to test everybody in the community. In this case, we'd be testing 330 million people in America. Well, once you do that, you would have the true death rate. And we're never going to be able to do that. But if we get anywhere close to doing that, we have to realize that we have we've kind of made the comparative data useless now, because if we tested, you know, let's say we tested 100 million people in America and. We you know, we got a number of how many people either had antibodies to this or you know had a positive PCR that said, you know, you're currently infected with this. And out of 100 million people, we have whatever number that is. We are out of, yeah, we test 100 million people and say 50 million people come with, come with it. And, with, and if, now if we lose 5,000 lives of the course of you know, that same period of time, then the, then the death rate would be 5,000 divided by 50 million, right? Uh, which would give us like a 0.01%, uh, which would be a very low death rate. Now, the only way that we could compare that to the flu is if we also tested almost everybody in America for the flu, and we don't. So then we would say, well, we don't actually know the true prevalence of influenza virus either. We do know the death rate. So all we can really hang our hat on, the only thing that we truly know right now is the absolute deaths, right? Now, absolute deaths aren't insignificant, and I'm not, and I'll be clear at the beginning of this uh, podcast. I'm I'm not dismissing the importance of this. I'm not saying that you know the fact that we've lost 22,000 lives doesn't matter. Uh, those are you know I'm not saying those are 22,000 people we didn't need or anything like that. What I am saying is that you have to include that into the whole. You have to look at you have to look at everything, um, and you have to compare that to all deaths. And something that the media is really really bad at is they're really bad at giving the denominator. In fact, they almost never give the denominator. And what I mean by that is with the denominator, we would say 22,000 people out of 
this many people have died. Well, we don't ever hear that. And the reason we don't hear that is because that's not very sensational whatsoever. Okay. Um, because if you do that, if you say, okay, well, 22,000 people have died out of the entire population, that's nowhere close to being 1%. That's like uh, three one billionths of a percent, right? But if you say, okay, we know four to five million people die worldwide every month, and if this has been going on for three to four months, you know, let's just call that, uh, you know, let, let's just call that 20, 20 million people have died since we know that people have been dying from coronavirus. Follow me. Does that make sense? Uh, absolutely. I was just, I was just Googling um, numbers. I guess China so far has about three and a half thousand deaths. And right. again, what you're saying, China has a population of 1.5 billion with a B people. So I'm that, that's what I've observed as well is how can you create any numbers if you haven't done tests? And that is the other thing. Tomorrow, those tests are, you know, they're, they're irrelevant now anyway, because the person could be exposed the next day. Right. And so here's the other problem. Right, so if we if we say, all right, well, that's glib to say that uh, everybody, the absolute risk of everybody dying is the same. And so you can't you can't use the whole population. Say, OK, well, let's just go with the number of people who have died. And so, like I said, we're going to estimate there's 20 million people who've died in the last four four months since we know people have been dying from this. Well, if you put twenty two thousand over over 20 million you end up with a 0.1% of deaths have come from coronavirus. And there's some complications to that too, right? Um, because there are people who definitely would have died from what they already had going on. Um, and coronavirus was a factor, not necessarily a cause. But let's just be generous and say it's the, it's the absolute cause of all 22,000 people would not have died had they not gotten coronavirus, Okay. And if that were the case, then you would have a 0.1% chance of dying from coronavirus, meaning that of all of the people who have died over the last four months, 99.9% .9 of them died from something other than coronavirus. Again, I'm not saying that it's insignificant that people are dying. I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything. We shouldn't do our best to defend against this. What I'm saying is that we have to consider the basal rate of death. We have to look at what what is this death rate compared to everything else? If 99.9% .9 of the people are dying from something other than this, why are we shutting down the world for this? Yeah, I agree 100%. And why is there no discussion on the fact that the true way of combating some of the deaths is to create healthier humans? And that's not being said at all. So as as a paramedic, as a firefighter, we get a very different perspective than most people. So it is frustrating watching what we see on TV, watching the scaremongering, because every single human being that dies, I, I feel for them. I mean, it's horrendous. So I started this podcast, as you know, to stop people from dying, period, whether it's mental health, physical health. That's the whole purpose of this. But as a fire, as a paramedic... We lose hundreds of people a week in a fire department, just the people we run on from, you know, the, the heart attacks and, and the overdoses and the stabbings and the shootings and the car wrecks. So as a first responder, when you're looking at a global factor, knowing how many people are morbidly obese or hypertensive, have got, you know, uh, 
diabetic issues are you know immunocompromised through chemo through hiv whatever it is these numbers are very very small and that's what i see i am not in any way shape or form well educated in in epidemiology or you know immunology or any of those things but i have a street level perspective and these numbers the 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 reaction is that we've got yeah, a hundred thousand times the numbers that we're getting, and so that's that's the bit that I reach out to people like you to to educate me because from a first responder, you know, point of view, they seem very very small. Right. Well, and and another narrative, and I I think this is I, I've said it probably half a dozen times in the last couple of weeks on various podcasts, and it, I think it's really unpopular, um, but it, it's nonetheless where it's worth can. It's worth considering. It's worth saying. It's worth considering. And uh, and I'm not doing this for popularity. And so if people uh, are offended by this, I'll apologize in, in advance. I'm not meaning to uh, offend anyone's sensitivities, and I'm not meaning meaning to belittle the you know loss of life and loved ones and all that other stuff. But you know, everybody keeps talking about herd immunity, right? Uh, and herd immunity basically means that when there's a threat to your herd, to your um, herd, there's a certain population of your herd that is much, much, much more likely to die from that threat. And so, you know, to to kind of dumb that down and take it into something that's that's more conceptually friendly, you know, think about a herd of of uh, wildebeest, right? Um, or you know, a, any a herd of antelope. Right. And and the existential threat to the antelope might be a lion or a lioness. Right. So the herd, the, the certain number of those animals would fall prey to that predator. And this could be true with the disease, but I'm just keeping it simple to get the concept across. Yeah. What what animal, you know, which one of the antelopes are the most likely to get caught by the lion? Now, it could just be one unlikely antelope that kind of got separated and it could be one of the healthiest, fastest, most robust, most most robust one. But just because of the scenario and terrain, maybe that one gets caught. And these are the unfortunate examples of, you know, young, fairly healthy people, you know, succumbing to a disease that otherwise doesn't kill them. But we do know that the that the very young and the very old are much more likely to be eaten by this lion or to become the prey, and and so kind of what gives what gives the herd immunity in this situation is being agile and strong. So if all of if the lions have plenty of food and the, their prey have almost no food, well now all of them are impaired and they're all at much higher risk. So the healthier they are, kind of the higher the immunity they have to this lion's threat. Now we can say the same thing for a disease. Um, most diseases preferentially kill the very young humans and the very old humans. And we have, again, like a basal rate of what I would say, you know, let's just call it infectious uh, lower respiratory disease, right? Or re infectious respiratory disease, right? Um, and, and so this would include MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, and SARS-1 and 2. This is now SARS-2 because um, those are sudden, right? Those are, that's a sudden attack of risk, uh, respiratory syndrome. Um, and, you know, the influenzas are, you know, fall into this category. What that means is that 
these things infect your respiratory system and cause problems result in your death or severe illness or even moderate illness. Um, so if you have uh, if you have a population, and let's just keep it simple. Let's say you have a let's say you ha we have a million people that if they were to get any one of these diseases that I just listed, they would most likely die. Okay, and so a million people are really susceptible to this, and it's either because they have immune deficiencies, other metabolic comorbidities, or they're elderly. Um, and so this million people, we really need to protect because if these million people are, are exposed, they're much, much, much more likely to have a bad outcome. So let's say every year out of those million people and that million just kind of keeps regenerating, right? <laughs> because people are getting older every year and falling into these categories, becoming immune deficient or whatever. And so let's just say for simplicity, we have a constant state of a million people that are vulnerable to die from infectious respiratory disease every year. Well, it used to be that we didn't have influenza A. We only had influenza B. Um, and, you know, we, there's always there's always been other things exposed to it. But, you know, we had this flu season every year that's killing a certain number of people. And. You know, in America, it's it usually ends up being somewhere between twenty five thousand and I think sixty, maybe sixty five or seventy thousand. Kind of the, is the peak we ever have. Uh, but let's just say, let's simplicity. Let's say it's fifty thousand people per per year that die from this. Well, now we still have kind of the same death rate, but for the last eleven years, we've had this SARS one, uh, not the SARS, the H one N one, the uh, the swine flu, right? So we've had we've had that um, added to the bell curve, right? So the total number of people who die over a period of time and their age distributed, we create this bell curve of it, and the area under that curve is the total number of people. Well, that number seems to be pretty consistent even though we have a lot more people dying this flu season, for example, from H1N1 than we do from influenza B. And so 11 years ago, when we didn't have an H1N1, we still had about the same number of people die. So where I'm going with this is we could have a dozen different viruses that infect us that are risky to that million people every year. And so far, it looks like the odds of that million people succumbing to that infection is a fairly consistent number. And so this could just be something that gets added into that. Does that make sense? No, it does completely. And so with that, um, that analogy you use with the lion and the, you know, the, the uh, antelope or wildebeest or whatever, whatever prey you want to use, um, that's, that's the problem with this equation that, that I have. And there's, there's very little dialogue that you and I have spoken to now for three episodes about this, is making those that herd stronger. So right now, obesity and some of these, you know, these things that are plaguing not only our adults, but our children is like having three-legged wildebeests and, you know, you know what I mean? And blind wildebeests and all this stuff. So it's, it's always this, this virus. And to me, I, I, this virus is almost like, uh, um, uh, what's the right word? An analogy for anything, 
for any ill health. So if we're focusing on sleep, which obviously we're going to talk about, nutrition, exercise, you know, and, and, and even the quality of our foods, the way we farm, if we're truly this worried about the health of a nation, the fact that we're still selling cigarettes in stores, these are areas to me that that we're not talking about that are actually the solutions to not only a virus, but cancer and heart disease and, and diabetes and all these things that it's not seasonal, that are killing our men and women every single day. Yeah, the, the entire basal rate, like how do we change? And you know, there, there's an argument to be made that right now we could be at a higher, uh, we could be at a lower basal rate of death, right? Because we know that roughly 100 people a, die, a day die in automobile accidents. And with the economy shut down, we've probably gotten that down to next to nothing. Occupational deaths are, have gone to almost nothing for this period of time we've been uh, sequestering ourselves. And we've only, and again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not making light of it, but we've only had 1,100 and some odd deaths at this point in a country of 330 million people. And we would have had many more deaths from automobile accidents and, and um, you know, work-related occupational accidents and, and probably other things, probably victims of violent crime and, you know, murder and all that other stuff. I, I would assume that's probably, you know, going down to a, a substantial degree. So we might actually have, have fewer people die. Now, the other thing that we don't know, and we won't know for a long time, is looking back um, until, you know, we can look back and, and analyze it. But it could be that, um, you know, it, it's certainly true that a certain number of those 1,100 plus people who've died in America would have died from H1N1 or influenza B or like some other infectious disease. That's certainly true. Like what portion of that, we don't know, but that goes back to the whole idea of the basal rate. Um, we could be at a net positive for life in America over this last 10, 11, 12 days, whatever we've been doing this. We don't really know. We won't know for a long time. But to your point, you know, I, I think of it a lot like the financial crisis that we've been in for a long time and we're making much worse right now. It's like we're not going to get out of that because we go because one day we wake up and say, oh, my gosh, look at the threat of this financial crisis we're in. We need to fix this today. It doesn't work like that. You know, you're spending decades uh, creating this mess. It's going to take decades to get out of this mess. And the same thing is true for obesity and the same thing is true for you know people who aren't exercising and who are smoking and you know who are eating crap food and who are stressed out of their mind and uh, you know all of these lifestyle things and I, I think what scares people the most is they go okay at some level either conscious or subconscious they know okay I haven't I haven't been taking care of myself you know whatever I'm 50 years old and I haven't been taking care of myself I don't think taking care of myself this week is going to make the difference between me living and dying from this coronavirus. I say that's not true. Uh, it, it's the one thing that, so here's the one thing, or okay, there's two things we know. Well, um, two things we probably know. So the, the absolute death rate in America that, that we're saying is from coronavirus, we know that number. The other thing that we know is that the, the only thing that has any true predictive power as to whether or not you'll have a really bad illness and possibly death versus this thing pass right through you. You never even know you had it. The only thing that we know that's weighing into that right now is immune function. The higher your, the better your immune system is functioning, the lower your chances of any bad outcome of this. Also, 
if you don't have a bad outcome, if this disease doesn't, if this disease doesn't make you really sick or linger with you for a long time, you have a much lower risk of transmitting it to anybody else. If I can contract this illness, pass through me and get rid of it in four to five days, then there's only a four to five day window that I could actually give this to somebody else. And I'm just making that number up. We don't know what that number is. But if my immune system were half as good, it would be 10 days. And if it were a quarter as good, it would be what's it, 20 days, right? So there would be a bigger opportunity for me to spread it to more people. And it's going to be a more impact on me because I'm sick for 20 days. So the better your immune system is functioning, the faster you're going to get rid of it and the better citizen you're being to your community. Make sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So here's one really simple thing. <laughs> one super, super simple thing. Shorting yourself two hours of sleep per night decreases your immune function by about 30%. We know this to be true. It's been tested against all sorts of different immune, system, uh, immune functions in your body. So if I know for a fact that getting not enough sleep is bad for my immune system, if I short myself of sleep, I'm taking the same risk as I would be taking if I uh, ignore social distancing or self-sequestering or uh, isolation, whatever we're calling it. Um, quarantine. Um, I'm being an irresponsible member of my social group, of my society, of my community. The same thing if I eat foods that I know are not good for me. And by and large, I'm, I'm not talking about um, you know, things that, that just make you fat. I'm talking about things that, have an, that cause an immunological response. So when you eat something like gluten is a great example. Most people have heard of that. There are dozens of other things, uh, you know, even, you know, even like pretty much any simple, any highly processed white powder that you put in your body has this same type of effect. And what it, it actually offends your gut micro uh, microbiota and it actually offends your gut lining and makes it more likely that things are going to leak from your gut into your body and that's going to cause an immune response which is going to consume energy and resources from your immune system that could be dedicated towards fighting this virus if you were exposed to that so now if i'm eating crap food and i'm not sleeping well wow i've just done two things that make me more likely to get it make me more likely to give it somebody else and make me more likely to have a bad outcome and now I'm not going to be active. I'm not going to exercise. I'm not going to get, engage in movement. And not. And I don't mean that people who don't regularly exercise need to go out and start jogging. Like you need to get up and clean your own house. You need to mow your own lawn. You need to go out and wash your own car. You need to go for a walk. You need to go for a bike ride, whatever it is. You can just be active if you don't, if you're not active, like let's start with active. And if you're already, and if you're someone who exercises, keep exercising and we know that there are all sorts of immune boosting aspects to exercise. But the other big thing is that exercise decreases stress hormones, right? And what do stress hormones do to your immune system? They lower them. So if you think of fight or flight, if, if somebody's in fight or flight, they have the maximum amount of stress hormones they could possibly have. That's what, by definition, what that means. So I've hit a response to where I've essentially shut off a lot of functions in my body in favor of the functions that I think are likely to save me. And usually in fight or flight, we're talking about our, our bodies, right? So in fight or flight, our pupils dilate and take in a lot more light and a bigger field uh, of view. 
our lungs expand and take in more air, our heart rate increases, our blood pressure increases, the blood flow to our lens increases, we mobilize the stored glycogen, uh, you know, blood glucose essentially, we have storages of that, we're mobilizing that to give ourselves energy, our, our, our strength goes up, our pain threshold goes up, our endurance increases, our reflexes get faster, and we shut down our prefrontal cortex because there's only one thing that matters. And that one thing that matters is whatever causing your fight or flight. So it could be somebody threatening you with physical violence. It could be a, you know, a near miss uh, car accident. It could be, you know, uh, falling off of a roof or ladder or whatever. And if, and, and, you know, obviously ancestrally, it could be being preyed upon by either another human or, you know, an, an animal that was out to eat you. And so when all of that stuff is happening to make us capable of fighting or fleeing, some things aren't happening. We aren't digesting anything. We aren't producing, uh, you know, ovum and sperm to be able to reproduce. We aren't, uh, we aren't doing any type of repair of damaged tissue. We're not fighting off parasites or bacteria or viruses or other infections because it doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. Those are now things, Right. So our, our stress system, our cortisol system, is meant to protect us from stuff outside of our body. And we only have so many resources, right? We have a finite amount of resources. And if we look at this in the simplistic way of saying the immune system is, you know, like, uh, like let's say it's an army that's fighting for you, right? Well, your external immune system is your fight or flight. That's your stress hormone. That protects you from your environment. It makes you more capable to handle a bad environment. Your immune system is your internal defense. So if things get past the primary defense to virus and bacteria and parasites is our skin. We don't have that protection in our mouth and nose and eyes, which is why you don't rub your face and all this stuff. So once that virus gets into it, now the stress hormones are no longer going to help us with that threat. In fact, I just told you when you're in fight or flight, your internal, your immune system doesn't really work during fight or flight. So what's the exact opposite of fight or flight? Deep sleep. When you're in slow wave sleep patterns, you have almost no stress hormones. The exact opposite things are happening. You're not seeing, you're not hearing, your heart rate's low, your blood pressure's low, your respiratory rate's low. You, you know, you're not sensing things, you're, you know, your muscles aren't being pumped full of uh, glucose from stored glycogen, like all of that, none of that stuff's happening. What is happening is the exact opposite. The digestion is up, the immune system is up, the hormone production, especially sex-related hormones and reproductive systems, those are all ramped up because you're in deep sleep. The exact opposite, the exact opposite of fight or flight. So now we have another reason to sleep well because we're getting really uh, we're getting the highest immune function while we're in deep sleep. But the more important thing that's being overlooked, I think, a lot with this uncertainty of dates and specificity about what you should be doing and not doing is stress, right? Because if uh, let's say while you're awake your basal stress level is three, right? Your stress hormones are at a three. And let's say fight or flight is a 10 and deep sleep is a one. So you have the highest level of stress hormones at fight or flight, but 
if you don't have any real stress in your life, you, you know, you have to have some stress hormones. So you float around the three. Well, what if you are more stressed out because you're worried, you're worried financially, you're worried about the uncertainty, you're worried about the disease, you're worried about your parents, you're worried about infection, you're worried about homeschooling. So now instead of running around at a three, you're running around at a five or maybe a seven. And so now the closer you get to fight or flight level of stress hormones, the worse your immune system is functioning. And so you have to control your stress as well. And if you don't control your stress, that leads to poor sleep. And if you don't sleep enough, that leads to an increase of stress hormones. So the good news is that the best you you can possibly be, the most optimized you to weather this storm, the financial storm, the social storm, the uh, disease storm, the COVID storm, the best you to be able to do that is created by the same behavioral decisions lifestyle decisions that we always talk about, right? It's exactly the same thing. You don't have to change what you eat. You don't have to change the exercise recommendations. You don't have to change how much you sleep. Maybe you have to put a little more change into a little more effort into reducing your stress, but it's still the same thing. Whether somebody's stressed out because they're going through a divorce or bankruptcy, or they're worried about their business or who knows, or if they're stressed out because there's a pandemic and they're isolated at home or be, they're stressed out because their immune system is working in overdrive to fight off this infection, it doesn't really matter. It's, we have to do the same things all year round, no matter what the external or internal threat is, we have to control our stress. And so the guidance doesn't change one bit. I, I, when my patients call me and say, what should I be doing? Like all the same stuff you should always be doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree a hundred, hundred percent. And then a total other avenue that I want to get your take on is there was a, a dipshit politician about a week ago that suggested that they deliberately expose all the first responders to the coronavirus because of quote unquote herd immunity, and then therefore they can then get on and do their job. And that shows, you know, the complete. You know, lack of understanding of so many areas, but it also highlights another thing. So these same politicians that are cutting staffing and closing fire stations, you know, blocking extra time off are the ones that are now leaning on them. So they're leaning on the firefighters that are working 56-hour weeks, the junior doctors, you know, the residents that are working 60-plus hours a week. And they're looking at them like they're, they're able to do this. Well, you've created a scenario where you have completely overworked the very people that you're actually falling back on now to help you during this crisis. So my question to you is, with these shift workers that are working, you know, like basically 20 hours more than the average office person, how do you think these these men and women are set up for success for as far as immune function or actually at a, a more of a deficit than an average civilian when we need them in this crisis, when it comes to something like a, a, a virus, it's like you know, a pandemic like this? I mean, I, I think we need to flesh that out a little. I mean, there, there's there's variability in that, of course, right, by how healthy and robust and young somebody is uh, and under those circumstances. So let's say uh, to expand on that, let's, you know, let's say that, uh, you know, let's say an optimal health, meaning that you're you're in good shape and you've been around long enough to have uh, developed 
a smart immune system and you take care of yourself and you're fairly young. Uh, and let's say that, you know, that's kind of the optimal category of humans and however many characteristics we want to add in that. And let's say that's, you know, 30, like a 30 year old. Well, a 50 year old firefighter and a 30 year old firefighter are going to be different. Right. But in general, uh, the 30 year old will be it might be twice as resilient as the 50 year old. But if that if that person is overworked and overstressed, if that 30 year old is overworked and overstressed and instead of being twice as resilient, it might be one point five times more resilient. Right. So, I mean, you're still kind of looking at the as an ideal subset of like young, healthy, health conscious, um, careful, educated, skilled people who are able to handle this stuff. But when you're sleep depriving them or giving them chaotic sleep schedules um, and, you know, putting a lot of uh, stress on them that, you know, and stress by and large just is when, when I'm talking, this is sort of negative stress and being that there's nothing you can really do about uh, the demands being put on you. Um, you know, you're, you're doing your best, but it's, it's more than you can do um, in a healthy, controlled uh, situation. So you're just kind of grinding through it. And that's going to lower your immune function. It's going to lower your willpower. And it's going to lower your decision-making capabilities. And it's going to lower your mood and affect and make you more emotional and make you more likely to be depressed and make you like likelier to eat bad foods and likelier to store food as fat and like all kind of the negative health consequences of being stressed out, which makes you more like the 50-year-old or may, more like the 60-year-old. It makes the 20-year-old more like the 50-year-old and 30-year-old more like the 50-year-old. So it's not ideal. Uh, but again, sort of like the military, uh, you know, it's, it's a younger, healthier, more robust population to begin with. Um, and obviously the best thing would have, would be to have those people optimized at all time. Um, because you know what, the next pandemic isn't going to be the same as this pandemic. And so we can do all sorts of preparatory work and act like we've got this all under control and we're ready for the next one. Well, we're ready for the next coronavirus. We're not ready for the next pandemic, right? The next pandemic could be anything. The next pandemic could be a parasite. The next pandemic could be something that causes dysentery. Um, the next pandemic could be waterborne that causes dysentery. And, you know, and it's infecting all the water supply. So how do you, how do you, pre you can't prepare against it. The only thing that you can do is keep everybody as capable as possible, keep educating, keep working on modeling and perspective ideas of what you think might be coming. But to have the most resilient people possible out in front is the key to that, right? Which is which is what I was saying kind of about, you know, the military. Like we have, you know, we have uh, surgical teams in the military where three, you know, three people can, you know, hike in with backpacks and set up a surgical center that can handle two surgeries at the same time. You know, I mean, not to mention what we can do with field hospitals, not to mention what we can do with all these people who are trained in this mass casualty environment. And we have specialized equipment for them. We have specialized training for that. And it makes a lot more sense to lean on people who have, who have been designed, you know, like who have designed their lives around being good at this. And organizations, you know, we have, the, uh, you know, the NGOs, non-governmental organizations that travel around the world and set up medical facilities. You know, there are there are plenty of people with expertise on handling disaster relief medicine. And so, uh, you know, New York is in a very critical situation right now. 
where they have, you know, they have a lot of, they're having a lot of death relative to the rest of the country. Um, And they're really worried about outstripping their, their hospitals. All right. Well, let's be realistic. I mean, we, there's no doubt in my mind that we can have, you know, uh, convoys set up with that can set up medical centers and bring in respirators and ventilators instead of, you know, several dozen field hospitals in a day or a weekend. Like that's completely realistic to think about being able to do that. And currently in America, we only have around 1,400 cases that are considered serious, right? Serious and critical. So the critical would almost certainly be on ventilators or respirators. The serious, maybe, maybe not. So let's give it all critical and say, well, there's only 1,400 people in the entire country that are in that situation right now. So where's the rationale in saying we need 40,000 ventilators just in New York City? Like that's, that's just not rational. People aren't being rational. And And it's not really subjective as to whether or not we're overreacting. Um, You know, the CDC has produced its own guidelines for, you know, when we engage in, uh, you know, what's called the NPIs, right? So NPIs are non-pharmaceutical interventions. So that's things like washing your hands and wearing a mask and, uh, you know, sanitizing and not coughing on people. Uh, I think you call it respiratory discipline or something, uh, closing down schools, like all of this thing, like this is all in the disaster plan for the CDC. Like they have people who do this for a living. It's all they do is plan. If something were to happen, what would we do? And what are the criteria to know if we're in category one, category two, category three, category four of a pandemic. And I had it up earlier. Let me see if I can pull this up. Uh, uh, yeah, so yeah, these non-pharmaceutical interventions. So th- there's categories one, two, three, four, and five. And category one means that we're assuming a 30% illness rate amongst an uh, unmitigated pan- pandemic without interventions. And we're going to have uh, less than 90,000 deaths. Well, that's a category one and 30, 90,000 expected deaths to 450,000 expected deaths um, or projected number of deaths. Right. That's category two. And it goes up. Well, how many deaths do we have in America right now? It's about a thousand, isn't it? Yeah. Eleven hundred, thirteen hundred. So we, we should be category one, but they're projecting. We're guessing that we're going to have more than that. And because we think we might be. Uh, more than that, we are going to react as though we're in a higher category. So, for example, um, voluntary isolation if you're sick, that's recommended in category one. Voluntary quarantine, that's not recommended in category one. Sh- shutting down schools, not recommended. Workplace you know, decrease number of social contacts at work, increasing distance between people, modifying, postponing schedules, all that stuff, modifying workplace schedules and practices, not recommended in category one, considered in category two and three and recommended in categories four and five. So we're, we're behaving as though this is category four and five. Category, category four means we're going to have somewhere between 900,000 and 1.8 million people. 
And category five is over 1.8 million people. And that's not affected. Again, that's, point, that's dead. Yeah, that's dead. These are dead people, right? This is how many deaths we're having. Now, again, we have 22,000 worldwide. China essentially has zero new cases per day right now. I mean, they're having like four and five new cases per day. Um, you know, it, we, we have 1,400 critical p- patients right now. How, how can we say, well, we are, we're expecting somewhere around a million people to die when we have 1,400 critical cases? Even if every one of those died, that's 1,400 deaths. That's nowhere near a million. So I'm not saying we shouldn't be reacting this way, but anybody who's saying we're not doing enough, is, they're just not basing this on reality. Like I said, you know, this has been time tested through the swine flu. These are still the CDC's recommendations and guidelines. We are acting as though like this is the most severe category of a pandemic. This is what we can do. There's not other things we can do. So it's just like the car example. You can wear your seatbelt. You can drive a safe car. You can you know, crash test cars and put airbags in cars and make manufacturers can make the safest possible car. People can buy the safest possible car. You can drive the speed limit. You can be extra cautious. You can not drink and drive. You can not use your cell phone. You can uh, avoid freeways. You can, you know, whatever. You can, there's all sorts of things you can do, but we all have our own threshold. If we said, all right, there's 1.2 million deaths in America in automobiles that accidents every year. We think that's completely unacceptable. We don't want any more than a thousand. We could turn all of our national resources to dropping automobile accidents uh, or traffic accident deaths to a thousand. And we will completely gut the economy to do that. But we could probably do it. So I'm not saying we should just so go, okay, well, people are going to die. Just go back to work. No, Wear your seatbelt, right? Wash your hands. Don't drink and drive. Don't sneeze on people. These are social contracts, social responsibilities. These are the things we can do. Keep your distance from other people. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Stay home if you're sick. Quarantine yourself if you know you've exposed yourself to your whole family and you're sick and you've been around your family. Your whole family could stay home. That would be a quarantine. Okay, yeah, let's do that stuff. But we don't shut down the freeways and we shouldn't shut down the entire economy unless we're going, you know, it, we, we shouldn't shut down the entire economy to avoid 20,000 flu deaths any or coronavirus deaths any more than we should shut down the entire economy to avoid a million automobile deaths or traffic accidents. So as a society, it's a contract. And, and I shouldn't have I, I shouldn't have said should. I'm just saying we need to compare that. We need to think about what is our threshold for saying this is an acceptable amount of deaths because there, we can do everything within our control, everything within our powers, and we would still have people dying from car accidents unless we just got rid of all cars. Yeah. Well, that that analogy as well, I, I actually um, approached that that um, topic a little while ago and wrote wrote a piece on it. Because we do, we, we in the U.S. alone, we have I think forty thousand fatalities just in America. I think the million is, is global, isn't it? I believe, um, and that's a huge. Oh, I believe, so, I believe so. I believe so. Please, uh, you know, fact check I that. I could have confused myself. But regardless, regardless, it's it's a, a million lives, whether it's nationally or globally, that that we can help save. And one of the areas that, again, I've been here seventeen years now in America. 
Yeah, there's each country does things differently. Some countries do one area really well. I think that the UK does driving tests very well, and they're really, really hard. And it takes most people about two or three attempts to even pass their driving test. When I came over here in Florida specifically, I literally drove around a parking lot, did a few maneuvers, and they said congratulations. So that's the other thing. We can not text and drive. We can wear our seatbelts and obviously all those things. And we can also raise the standard the same way as it would be raising immunity in this particular example so that we teach people right off the bat. This is why you use your blinker. This is why you don't drive six inches from the car in front. So you then educate people and then you're you're probably going to save a huge amount of lives there. And that's how I see it with first responders changing their their work weeks so we're not destroying their immunity and they are more resilient when it comes to something like this. And the general population as well. If we at the front door teach our children about food and nutrition teach you know feed them actually good food in our schools don't spray our food with chemicals don't keep our livestock in factory farms don't let people prescribe pills versus actually getting them to change nutrition and and, and exercise that to me is the same as raising standards in in a driving test and, and and requiring so many hours of actual driving lessons before you taste it that's that's another area another direction that we can improve safety on the roads and the same thing with safety against any whatever the next virulent disease is right right i agree and yeah you're absolutely right i just pulled it up it's uh 36,000 uh, 30 fatalities in in 2018 I, I i must have been thinking about worldwide stats um I, thanks for correcting me, though, because I've probably said that like four or five times on different podcasts and nobody's challenged me on it. So I appreciate you keeping me honest. Well, it's only because, like I said, I just researched it to write this piece, um, you know, really aimed at just seeing people driving like complete assholes around my neighborhood. It kind of spurred me to write something that might get people to pay attention. But um, well, we've we've obviously explored this topic very well. Another one I want to I want to kind of just touch on. I saw you share some um, articles on this, but. A while ago now, we talked about TBIs in one of our episodes, but this has also come up again recently with documentaries like the Aaron Hernandez documentary, and then I had a, a firefighter, LA firefighter, Eric Stevens on, who is a fireman. He played college football. I think he even played professionally for a moment, and then um, he has ALS. So what what are the things that you've seen since our last discussion or two regarding TBIs and, and, and brain injuries? And then obviously, especially the interaction with sleep on um, trying to combat some of those. Uh, well, you know, to be honest, I, I don't think any anything has uh, changed in my perspective. Uh, I don't remember exactly when we met, but I've had a couple of uh, when we what, what month we actually saw each other last. I mean, um, but I've, in the last maybe six months, I've had two, three patients um, have pretty significant TBIs, concussions um, from from doing their job. Uh, and, you know, un- unfortunately, nothing really changes. Uh, you know, all, all of the same all the same signs and symptoms. Uh, you know, the, these particular guys are. Um, a couple of these guys are, are, uh, are you know, in the Hollywood uh, stunt and acting scene, and um, and they've kind of it's kind of opened up a lot of conversations between them, and uh, and in the conversations, a lot of them are, are are really starting to understand and and express these frustrations uh, again about how 
little importance is is placed on these things. Um, you know, if people break their arms, uh, you know, then the industry that they're in, you know, you know, gives them disability and pays and takes care of everything. But if they're if they bang their head and have a concussion and now all of a sudden they're sensitive to light and they have increased anxiety and their digestion's down, their motivation's down, their ability to sleep has gone down. They're they're not being taken as seriously as somebody who has like an objective, you know, broken bone or you know, torn ligaments and tendons and things like this. So, you know, I that was kind of a new industry for me. It was it was kind of uh, surprising uh, because you know, in the military and and a lot of the you know uh, first responders, like you'd be familiar with both of these, is that. Um, it's actually the culture itself that kind of minimizes the importance of it. Um, you know, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily the leadership, although, you know, the culture grows to become the leadership, but, you know, within your community and these, um, you know, they, it just doesn't seem to be taken as seriously because it's not, it's not objective. This is the first time I've seen where the actual community of people at risk they really seem to understand the impact and the dangers of this, whereas the people above them are the one poo-pooing it now. And so it's like it's kind of a whole new frustration level. And these are people, you know, who are more financially uh, advanced, let's say, than than a lot of first responders and military and so forth like that. So that you know they're able to go out and buy these uh, treatments that most other people can't afford. You know, they, they go into these intensive inpatient treatments and do everything under the sun, you know, to, you know, they're, they're getting NAD infusions and ketamine infusions and, you know, uh, hyperbarics and they're floating and they're, you know, getting, uh, supplementations, IV, you know, NAD, IV glutathione, um, you know, neurocognitive training, brain training, brain feedback, um, you know, they're kind of doing everything all at once and they're paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to do this, but they're, they, and, and, you know, and time is of the essence for them, you know, they have to make their next audition or their next, uh, you know, their next gig or they don't make any money. Um, and so I, I'd say that's kind of the biggest change is just, you know, seeing that from another perspective and then, uh, kind of my frustration of seeing these, these guys, not only the frustration of their uh, governing body, so to speak, not taking this seriously enough, but also the frustration to see you know, really how quickly these guys are getting back because they can afford these resources that we everyone in this field knows works. Uh, and, um, and, you know, we, it's just not covered by the healthcare system. It's not covered by the military. It's not covered by municipalities. But we know all of these things that they're doing work and these people are having, you know, much, much more rapid, even though they're I mean, they're serious. You know, one of the guys has been seriously debilitated for six months. Um, and I'm not even sure. I don't even think he lost consciousness. You know, it was just it was a good blast. And it's you know, he's very he's a very rugged, hardworking, durable, strong, resilient guy. Um, and like he's still trying to get his act together. And it's been six months and it's impacting his livelihood and his confidence and his relationships and all this other stuff. So uh, but I I think about the most severe military guys I've seen. Well, you know, they were nowhere near as high functioning as he is right now. And then there's the other couple of guys went through similar treatments and they just got 
you know, they say, well, I'm mildly impaired and it's been three or four months, but I'm like, I feel like I'm 90, you know, 95, 97% of the way there. And we could do that with our military members, but we don't, you know, we could do that with the first responders, but we don't, we could, I mean, it's not uncommon for that stuff to linger for years in the military. I'm not as sure about the first responders, but you know, a decade in the military wouldn't be uh, unusual probably. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I actually just re-entered the stunt space myself. I, I started doing um, the training, which is grand to a halt at the moment, for a new stunt show they're putting in Universal Studios in Florida. But um, I had uh, Olivia Jackson on the show, who was a stunt woman that that uh, was horrendously injured in a, a stunt that went wrong. The other other vehicle didn't do what they were supposed to do, and her, the the company she worked for completely abandoned her. So she was left to fight all that stuff on her own. So again, depending on those individuals, like you said, their financial backing, if the, the whoever they're working for does have the ownership, you know, I can see how that would be great. But there, are, I'm sure a lot of stunt performers listening to this that probably don't have the money or the support to to get that either. So, but the fact that there are treatments that you're seeing that are so effective that are out of grasp of the people that really need it is is obviously something that we need to change as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm working on it, man. I'm doing what I can. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, four four episodes in, I know you know you you're the reason, one of the the biggest reasons why I started the podcast. And for everyone listening, some of the questions that were written in, um, I've already covered on episodes six seventy or two forty one. So I'm not gonna go over those. But I don't want to just kind of pick your brains on a couple. I don't think that we we talked about. First one, and I know we, you know, we're going to segue very well into sleep remedy here. But one of them said, if they've been taking sleeping medicine for a long time, how, you know, what what's the the best advice you give for transitioning off? Um, the, you know, so the way I always do that is I titrate people off. I mean, I gradually reduce it. So the first thing is to optimize everything you can around your sleep hygiene and sleep behaviors and sleep belief systems. Get everything optimized while you're still on your sleep medication. And I've done it with like serums where I'll have a compounding pharmacy make a serum that's essentially one milligram per drop, say. And so they're, you know, they're currently taking 10 milligrams of Ambien. So they take 10 drops. And they do that for like two to three days and then they go down to nine drops and they do that for two or three days. They go down to eight and they in gradually were decreasing the amount of drug that they're depending upon to help them initiate sleep in their mind, uh, which isn't necessarily objectively true. But subjectively, it seems to be true. They feel like they're going to sleep and sleeping better. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you obviously have to hyper focus on your on your all of your sleep related behaviors and that's you know light saturation you know temperature darkness in your room um you know amount of stress you're feeling during the day the way you're eating like all the lifestyle stuff and it's not unlike getting in in shape when you're you know if you're if you're really out of shape if you've neglected your your health and body for 20 years and now you want to get back in shape well, you have to be really, really rigid about what you do, right? You have to you have to kind of log and chart everything. There's a lot of self-discovery, and you have to be really rigid and really disciplined. And, and you have to do that to make progress. 
And then once you kind of reach close to the health state that you want to be, you can back off all that stuff. You don't have to be so rigid. You're still, you still, those general principles are still true. But, you know, maybe you go out for, you know, fish and chips a couple of times a month or, you know, you eat a pint of ice cream, you know, once in a while, something like that. You know, you, you skip some, you know, you skip some exercise days and go camping or fishing or like whatever, like, you don't have to be as rigid to make the progress because you're 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 trying to change belief systems and behavioral patterns and lifestyle choices and um, and so the the same's true as you're getting off of a sleep drug. Well, you're in about the worst situation you could be in for trying to sleep. So you need to do everything else perfectly. And then once you've been off of the sleep drugs for multiple months, then you can start playing around with. You know, I'm going to relax this a bit, uh, relax that a little bit, and I'll see, you know, how how well I sleep and all. And again, there'll be a threshold. There's, you know, there, there, there's something between doing nothing and there's, and perfection, per, you know, perfection isn't possible. You're never going to hit the perfect, um, lifestyle choices. You're never, right. You're not, nothing's ever going to be a hundred percent ideal. Um, but you know, you, you set your acceptable, your threshold for how perfect do you need to be, um, after, you've kind of gotten past that transition period. But I would say, you know, realistically two to three months of, you know, absolute um, over the top, overzealous kind of sleep hygiene and um, sleep prioritization. Brilliant. Now you have a product, um, the sleep remedy. I swear by it. I've taken it for a long time now. I want to say taken it. It's literally a bedtime supplement drink. Um, so tell people about that. Cause I'm, I mean, that's, that's been a great way for me to, to bridge that gap. You know, you come off shift, you're, you're hypervigilant still, you're trying to, you know, deregulate your nervous system. That really was a very powerful tool I found to be able to naturally begin that sleep pressure and get to bed early. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's nothing, uh, uh, you know, I probably say this every time. I'm a, I'm a terrible salesman, but you know, there, there's nothing magic about the product. It's, um, you know, it, it's something that I developed for this specific purpose we were just talking about. Because when you take away people's sleep drugs, it it helps the it really helps to give them something else. You know, you can't just take it away and say suck it up, kiddo. Like you know, you uh, you can't use this anymore. So you know, as people were. Uh, I, I really kind of invented this to help people during that titration period. And then it just turns out that people tend to sleep better on it all the time. So they just keep taking it. Um, but that was, you know, that was the primary purpose of it. And, and all I did was really was do, you know, basic research on basic sleep physiology and say, like, what changes in your brain when you're getting ready for sleep and what's the cue for that. And so that's what all the behavioral stuff is about. That's what the sleep hygiene is about that, you know, sleep hygiene is really about, um, you know, kind of reenacting ancestry to the best of your capabilities. So, you know, decreasing the light, decreasing the stimulation to yourself, like a few hours before bed, and then your brain and body kind of change, your body temperature goes down, your brain chemistry changes, and you feel more like sleeping and you fall asleep. And then, you know, your body wakes itself back up over the course of the night with a lot of physiological changes. And so, the, you know, the whole idea behind uh, the sleep supplement was uh, just to give all of sort of the necessary ingredients that would be there, uh, assuming you didn't, you know, if you didn't have any deficiencies in sort of any nutrient 
or any sort of pro hormone like you know like vitamin d3 or something he didn't have any or melatonin like he didn't have any deficiencies of any of that stuff or the constituents that lead to that then you would kind of be in the ideal state to sort of simulate you know your ancestry of you know the the sun going down and your body doing everything it needs to do and so i you know i i over the course of a year or so i worked with uh my seal uh clients or patients you know to fine tune sort of the ratios of all of these things and you know which ingredients team team seemed to really work and which ones didn't and uh, and, you know, we came about this formulation that we're on right now. We made it a liquid, put it in, in the foil stick pouches so you can just throw it in your pocket and it's, you know, and you can travel with it. You can put a handful of them in your pocket. You don't have to travel with a bunch of pills and potions and so forth. And it makes it waterproof and resistant to UV radiation. And I was all, you know, and, and that was the whole idea was really just to make it simple for the seals. And then it, you know, it turned into its own beast, its own business. And much to my surprise, um, I'm, and we're still really selling, selling the same thing we've always been selling. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, I can attest completely. I, I use it all the time. And then we've obviously just talked about sleeping meds, but I think the 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 lesser known uh, go-to for sleep for most of us was alcohol. So I find it a great okay. way of getting getting off that, trying to get away from using that as a crutch. But taking, you know, taking the remedy about nine, making the drink so you, you're part of that nighttime routine. And then before you know it, you're going to be, you're going to be getting sleepy. And then that way you can go to bed without any alcohol in your system. Yeah. Which is the best way to go to bed. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm going to just one quick question and then we'll do some wrap up stuff. Cause I know you've got the, the Facebook live in a moment, but someone, uh, another one of my friends, Marcel asked about how does diet affect sleep? And I think that's something we've talked about. Um, you know, what, what should you eat and when should you eat as far as evening meals? Uh, you know, nobody knows. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it really, you know, that really, I would say, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're overall healthy, it probably really doesn't matter. Uh, if you have any sort of metabolic dysregulation, then that would have to weigh into it. So, um, you know, obviously anything that's offensive to your gut causes an increase of stress hormones or like we were talking about, which is going to interfere with sleep. It, it seems to be that the hormonal milieu associated with digestion when food is actually in your stomach seems to be that that, that hormonal environment that's created while your stomach is actually churning and digesting food is suboptimal for sleep as well. Um, so it's better to go to bed with a stomach that's empty um, and if you give yourself maybe, you know, t two to four hours from the time you've eaten a big meal until the time you go to bed, your stomach would probably empty. Obviously, your, your small and large intestines are still, you know, digesting all of that. But, you know, it can get out of your stomach in somewhere around that two to four hour. Now, the, the other caveat, though, is that if you have insulin sensitivity issues um, or blood glucose issues, which is essentially the same thing, um, if, you have if you have reduced insulin sensitivity, then you're more susceptible to having larger fluctuations in your blood glucose level. And a fluctuation in your blood glucose level perceived by your brain as being too rapid, whether it's uh, going from 300 to 200 or it's going from 100 down to 40, uh, it, you know, that the rate of change is perceived uh, by your brain as a possible threat. 
Um, and then that will release stress hormones to get you awake and going and running around. Um, you know, it, the, one of the reasons that people in restrictive diets and specifically keto diets, uh, have difficulty sleeping is because they're, uh, across the animal kingdom, the only, the only animals that, um, <clears throat> deliberately sleep deprive themselves are humans, but other animals will sleep deprive themselves if they're starving or if they're being preyed upon. Uh, so if they're being pursued by a predator, that's like the IRS pursuing us or bankruptcy or divorce or the, you know, whatever, uh, death, like wh whatever we're afraid of, um, that can, that can interfere with your sleep, but also, uh, you know, stress hormones related with caloric restriction and stress hormones or and and blood glucose dips associated with caloric restriction or, you know, carbohydrate restriction more specifically. So if you know you have some glucose sensitivity issue or insulin sensitivity issues, blood glucose level and uh, sensitivities, then I would say, you know, eat, eat a complex carbohydrate before going to bed, something that's going to carry you uh, through the night. You know, obviously sugars and white powders and so forth are give you a big spike and a big crash and those are going to wake you up. Um, otherwise, I don't think it matters a whole lot what you eat or when you eat. Brilliant. All right. Well, I'm going to skip most of the, the closing questions. I just want to make sure that we talk about where people can find you online and the sleep remedy. So what's the, what's the best website for them to go to? Uh, docparsley.com. D-O-C, like short for doctor, and then parsley like the herb, docparsley, P-A-R-S-L-E-Y.com. Brilliant. And then I think if I remember rightly, the code, if you use behind the shield, you'll get 10% off as well. So I, I can't recommend trying it highly enough i give out samples all the time to complete strangers that are a little shocked by me approaching them but <laughs> if i if i hear people talking about sleep deprivation and i have some on me you know i that foundation training and some other things I, I swear by so this isn't a paid endorsement this is just because you know i i use it myself so um well i just want to say thank you so much kirk um i think this has been one of the most common sense uh like perspectives on what we're going through at the moment, obviously with the immunity and the resilience side really factoring in and then, you know, putting the numbers into perspective as well. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing the feedback we get from this conversation. Yep. Well, thank you for having me on. And uh, I, I hope your audience gets some value from it and you and I will talk again soon either way. Yeah.